0: So, we've just heard uh, Abby read our passage from the English Standard Version, the ESV. But did anyone happen to be following along in any other translation? Anyone? All right. So, did anyone have, like, the uh, New American Standard Translation or the King James? Okay. Uh, The NIV, New English Translation, right? A bunch of different translations. And so, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Jack he briefly noted how the subheading in your, in your uh, translation is a help, right? It's put there by translators or it's put there by editors to help guide our reading, right? to help direct how we're going to understand what's in, the, um, what's in the passage. And so as we're reading it this morning, I want us to pay attention to that note, what we're directed to. We're going to take our time this morning, a little bit going through the text, just to see what God might be saying to us. It might not actually match that subheading. So if that's the case, what is God trying to say to us? Let's open ourselves to the way God is going to speak to us this morning. So it might be self-evident and obvious to state, but at first and foremost, do not miss that this story we just read is about a man and it's a man who's afflicted by demons. So if we go back to those different translations, ESV, NIV, NTL, any, any of those versions, you have different headings. And sometimes that's revealing about what we focus on in the text. So one subheading is the demoniac cured, or the healing of the demoniac, or Jesus heals a demoniac, right? This is my favorite one. Demons cast into pigs. Right? It's an interesting interpretive move. Especially that last one, demons cast into pigs. Notice, that heading doesn't say anything about the people in the story. Right? It focuses on the demons cast into pigs. So, arguably, this version misses the point entirely about what Jesus is trying to say to us. How Christ is supposed to be revealed in us. Don't miss this fact, right? The man who is... Afflicted by demons is first and foremost a man. And he has demons, and he's also a victim. Right? He's a victim to his demons. So we don't know how he came to be afflicted. I suppose it really doesn't matter either. right? You see, if we read this story and immediately say this man's identity is rooted in the fact that he is afflicted by demons, we fail to see him just like how the city later on fails to see him in the story. So we fail to see his humanity, and we allow his circumstances to dictate his identity to us. Above all else, this man who is afflicted by demons is a victim of his demons, and we have no idea how he came to be afflicted. So notice, even more so though, what the first piece of information we receive about this man is, right? Verse 27. The first descriptor we have of him is he is from the city, right? So don't miss this. He's from the city, and then we're told he has demons. And for a long time he had worn no clothes, and he was homeless. As one who lived among the tombs in the ancient world, he was pretty much as good as dead, right? Right? He was a dead man walking. This is the condition Jesus finds him in. So, right now, visualize. Can you see him? Can you see this man from the city, who is a victim to his demons, who for a long time had not worn clothes, who was homeless, and who was living among the tombs? Jump down to verse twenty-nine. For many a time, the unclean spirit had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So I'm not trying to downplay the reality of evil that is driving this man into the wilderness. So we're told expressly that a demon is forcing him there. But what strikes me here is the information in light of the state Jesus finds him in. So while the text tells us that for a long time he had not worn clothes and for a long time he had not lived in a house, this also presupposes that at one point he had. If it's true that for a long time he had not worn clothes, it's also true that at one point this man from the city did wear clothes, even if it was a long time ago. At one point he used to live in a house even if now he hadn't lived in a house in the city for a long time. So also at one point, he had people in his life who cared enough about him to guard him and bind him with chains and shackles. I often think, I oftentimes think that, like, when we read this word, guard, it's phulaso in Greek, and we see guard coupled with shackles and chains, we immediately think prisoner, There's a distance, or there's a coldness when we read that. There's a distance between the ones guarding and the ones being guarded. Does anyone know where the previous usage of this word happens in Luke? It happens one other time before this happened. It happens in Luke 2, when the shepherds are guarding or keeping watch over their flocks by night. Same word. Almost the same participle. So while we typically read this verse to say that the man was bound and shackled because he was no good, perhaps this is revealing of us as readers, rather than revealing of the man in the story. One way to read this text is that at one point, people cared about him enough to keep the man and to keep watch over him like a shepherd cares and nurtures their flock. At one point, people had put chains on him, not because they were scared of him, but before, because they were scared for him. Right? They were worried about him. They were trying to protect him. So the chains were not meant to guard from harm, guard him from harming them. The chains were meant to guard him from self-harm. This is one way to read this text. Regardless, when Jesus meets this man, there's no one with him. And there's not been anyone with him for a long time. So in the past, whether he was being guarded for his own safety or the safety of the community, the time is long gone now. Like he has been alone at the tombs with no one for a long time. So if you're following uh, in the bulletin, in a word, here's the first blank. Forsaken. This man is forsaken. Forsaken. He's been forsaken by his community, left to live amongst the tombs, and live as an outcast from society. As one who has been forsaken, is it any wonder then how the man responds and why he responds this way when Jesus encounters him in verse 28? So verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, that's Jesus, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now when we read this, we almost always collapse the man and the demon together so that in the story, the demons are typically the ones who are speaking in the text. But notice who the subject is here in this verse. The man has had countless demons enter his body, his identity identity has been so fractured that the only thing he can say about himself is that he is a slave to his demons. So he calls himself legion. And then and only then do the demons speak for themselves. So verse 31, they beg Jesus to leave. Not the man begged Jesus. Like notice the man doesn't ask Jesus to rid him of the demons at all. He doesn't say it. I know that's shocking. He just doesn't do it. The demons talk to Jesus about how they can leave. They propose to be able to enter the pigs, and then Jesus permits them to do so. So they enter the pigs. The pigs run off the cliff in verse 33. So the demons, they beg Jesus about leaving, not the man. All the man does is beg Jesus not to torment him because he's been so broken and so forsaken that he can't recognize the difference between deliverance and destruction, right? He can't recognize the difference between deliverance and the demonic. And so he can't see the difference between liberation and incarceration. This man is forsaken, and he's been forsaken first and foremost by his community that has turned their backs on him. So it's like, uh, has anyone seen the movie Spotlight?, Right where it's about the scandal in the the church, in the Catholic church in Boston, there's that line where it says, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. Same goes here for this man. He has been forsaken, and for a long time he's worn no clothes, and he's not lived in a house, but he's lived among the tombs. If you're following along, point two... Forgotten. Point two is forgotten. If you have your Bibles, take a look at verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. So stop there. Oftentimes, I think we assume much more than what the text sketches out for us. Pay attention to who the subject is again. It's the herdsmen, and they see this shocking spectacle happen in front of them. So imagine you're one of them. You're doing your thing. You're tending to your sheep. And then all of a sudden, without notice, all of your sheep, all your wealth, all your economic security runs off a cliff and drowns in the lake. It just disappears. Right? That's unfathomable. It's like stock market crashes, but then you lose everything on top of that. So like all your liquid assets, gone, right? Everything is gone. It just, in the blink of an eye, Gone. So this is the it in verse 34 when we read it. They go and tell it to the city. Right? This is what they're talking about. All our resources, all our wealth, all the community's money gone in the blink of an eye. If we had more time, we'd sketch out like the actual landscape where the, where the tombs are in relation to where the grazing pastures were. They're separate. They're not in the same place. Oftentimes we read that in the same thing, but they're different. They're separated. And they're separated by quite a distance as well. All our resources are gone. If we go to verse 35, then people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So it's subtle here, but notice why the city folk leave the city in the first place. They heard a report from the herdsmen, and they see this massive loss of fortune for themselves. And then they go to Jesus. So their intention, notice the intention here, the man who has been forsaken is still forgotten by the city. The only reason the people come to Jesus in the first place is because of the economic loss. The people from the city come to Jesus first, and then in their coming they stumble upon or they find the man sitting at Jesus' feet, the forgotten man, And then they're afraid. And he's clothed, right? He's clothed in his right mind. He's probably wearing the clothes from Jesus' disciples or even Jesus himself. He's clothed now. So some commentators have argued that this fear being highlighted doesn't have anything to do with the pigs because while the the city people came to Jesus about their money, When they see the man, they're sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed, again, probably wearing some kind of garment from the disciples or Jesus. And now they're wondering whether or not Jesus is with them or against them. The people are thinking, this guy we gave up a long time ago, we gave up on a long time ago, he's back, and he's got a friend who has serious authority. The guy we forgot about back here, is he back now with vengeance? So verse 36. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Now's when we get the healing part. Verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country and the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So first the people come out concerned about the pigs. They go confront Jesus. Then they find the forsaken and forgotten one sitting at Jesus' feet, and they're scared. Then they hear how the demon possessed man had been healed, and they're even more scared. Specifically, they are seized with great fear. Like Luke's writing is so pointed here. Don't miss it. Y'all seized with great fear. Do you remember when Luke uses the exact same phrasing earlier in this very passage? When the man was seized by the when the man was seized by demons in verse 29. So remember how the man couldn't tell the difference between deliverance and the, and, uh, the demonic because he's seized by the demons there? The same happens here. The city can't tell the difference between restoration and retaliation because they're seized with fear. When they hear of the man's healing, there's no jubilation. There's nothing that happens. Like, they don't celebrate that at all. It's not, it's not news. Because all they think about is the retribution that's going to be coming their way. That's why they're seized with fear. So just like the man who had, many a time, been seized by the demonic, the city is seized by fear once they realize how they have treated a man from their own community. Not only has the city forgotten or forsaken the man by giving up on him earlier in the passage, they've also forgotten the man too. And their true priority has come to the surface. Their first concern was the pigs, not the man whom they had already forsaken and now have forgotten. So what does Jesus do once the city asks him to leave? He obliges. He gets in his boat and starts to leave. Which brings us to our last point. And this, this is mind-blowing. This is the crux of the whole story. So check it out, verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, and he said, Return to your home. Declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the entire city how much Jesus had done for him. So forsaken, forgotten, forgiven. Forsaken, forgotten, forgiven. This is the story. And what a story it is. So yes, this man has been healed from demons. Yes, he is clothed and his physical needs are met. Yes, he is able to see himself as a person now who can make his own decisions. And yes, the man is devoted to following Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. But you know what the most remarkable thing about this story is? The most remarkable healing here is the healing of his heart to be able to forgive the people who forsook him and forgot him so that he could bring them the good news. The most remarkable healing here is how he is able to forgive and then proclaim the work of Jesus in his life for the sake of others who have given up on him, who have let him down, who haven't supported him when he needed it most. This man has been so transformed that he is able to forgive and serve others. Not in a way that ignores the wrongs and the suffering that he has felt and he has experienced. Not in a way that ignores that, but in a way that can recognize that the wrongs he has suffered do not have the final word over his life. They don't have the final word. Redemption is working in his life. And when we talk about redemption, we're not talking about the erasing of wrong, right? We're talking about the rectifying of wrong. So, like, he doesn't ignore the wrongs of his past, but the deliverance he receives redeems the wounds he has suffered, which then become a testimony to the power of Christ alive in him. Remember, when Christ dies, and then he is risen from the grave, he still has his scars, His pain isn't washed away. It's not erased, but it is redeemed. It is redeemed. So when this man encounters Christ, the pain of being forsaken and forgotten turns into forgiveness. And it turns into forgiveness so that the man becomes the first evangelist to the Gentiles in Luke. So this healing is actually the only place in Luke where Jesus does any kind of miracle. It's the only place. If you're going to look at Matthew and Mark, many have noted that in both books, the healing of this man, of the demon-possessed man, in Gentile land, happens in the Decapolis. So that's like the ten Roman cities on the eastern side of the Roman Empire. That's where it happens, in Gentile land. And his proclaiming, this proclaiming here, uh, of everything Jesus has done for him, in those accounts, set up the next time when Jesus sets foot in the Decapolis. Does anyone know what that story is? It's the feeding of the 4,000. So, the next time Jesus comes back to the place where he's just left, there's 4,000 men, not including women and children, men. Men. And then their families who are there to see and hear Jesus. And many have argued that's only because this man goes and tells his story back to the city. He's able to do that, and that's only because he can do that there. The feeding of the 4,000 doesn't happen without this man telling his story back in the city. So now hear me. We never call evil good just because good came from it, right? Like... The feeding of the 4,000, incredible miracle. But we're not saying that justifies what happened before. We don't call that good. This isn't a Hallmark movie or like an inspirational poster. That's not what this is. When I read this story and I think about the times I've felt forsaken and forgotten, y'all, forgiveness doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen for me like it does in this man. So we, we don't want to downplay the weight of suffering here. But equally terrifying about this text is how often we are like the people from the city in this text, right? How just as each of us have felt forsaken and forgotten, we've also been the ones who have forsaken and forgotten others. So a little story. The air was taught with anticipation on an overcast morning at the Jefferson County Jail on April 3, 2015. It's 9.25, and a group of reporters, activists, friends, and family are all gathered, waiting in impatient expectation for the doors to burst open from the jailhouse. No one knew quite what would happen. Would there be tears? Would things get violent? Would the family be able to contain themselves? Inside the jail, Anthony Ray Hinton's head Was full of a different set of questions. Is this real life? Is this happening? What would it be like out there? Was he ready for this? It had been so long since he'd been outside that he wasn't quite sure how he would react once he crossed through the doors as a free man for the first time in 30 years. 30 years prior, Anthony Ray, a black man from Alabama, had been arrested and convicted of the murder of two restaurant workers in Birmingham. He was picked out from a photo lineup book, and it didn't seem to matter to the authorities that there had been no eyewitness evidence, no fingerprint evidence, that his alibi placed him 15 miles away at work when the crime had been committed, or that the police had given him a polygraph test that should have exonerated him in the first place because he maintained his innocence and he passed the test. It also didn't matter that the prosecution's ballistic analysis of the murder did not match the weapon that was purported to have been used by Anthony in the murders in the first place. Now, this information was withheld until decades later, but he had already spent his 30s behind bars. Instead, the police and his prosecutor who had a documented history of racial bias, said he could tell Hinton was guilty and evil solely from his appearance. And in a series of actions that now just seem to defy logic and all morality, Anthony Ray was sentenced to death row, where he he was going to spend the rest of his days waiting to die. So as he waited to leave jail, Anthony thought back to a time when he had been wrongfully arrested, when his state-appointed lawyer told him in response to him saying, I'm innocent, that all y'all always say you didn't do something. And then he thought to the detective who told him, I don't care whether you did it or not, you're going to be convicted. Let down, targeted, and forsaken by the police, his community, and the state of Alabama, Anthony would spend the next 30 years in prison. It wasn't until 1995 when Anthony reached out to Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative after seeing him on TV that Anthony would no longer be a forsaken and forgotten statistic. And his story would start to be rectified. 9.30. Now was the time. What would he say? He wasn't quite sure he had words to express his mix of emotions. What would it be like to be free? At 58 years old, the world had changed so much. As he crossed the doors, cameras snapped. His family cheered. Tears flowed freely like a flood. And the pain of being forsaken and forgotten began to be washed away from his body. Later, a news report of Anthony Ray's exoneration would refer to him as the man who had been a dead man walking For the last 30 years. But now as a free man, the remarkable story of Anthony Ray had one more twist in it. In an act that defies worldly logic and all sensibility, Anthony Ray has continually offered forgiveness to the people, the institutions, and the state that left him to rot. And he hasn't received any compensation. In an interview a few months after he was freed, the interviewer asked him how he was able to press on in the face of such horrible tragedy. And Anthony responded, the only way that I could take my life back was that I knew I had to forgive. I knew this. There was no doubt about it, but I knew I needed help in forgiving these racist white men that had did this to me. How do you forgive someone that you don't like or that that don't like you because of the color of your skin? I prayed that God would remove the hatred that I had in my heart for these men. I prayed daily that he would remove this hatred. I will not sit here and tell you that he did it overnight. All I can tell you is that eventually, at some point, in some time, I began to smile again, and I forgave those men that did this to me. Then the interviewer asked, If the people who had done this thing to you had reached out to you, would you have spoken to them before they passed? He says, oh, absolutely, absolutely. If I could meet any one of them today, the first thing I would say would be, I want you to know that I forgive you, and I'll forgive you again. And I'll forgive you for what you did to me. Now you have to find a way to forgive yourself. Then if I had the money, I would say, I'd love to treat you to a cup of coffee so that we could talk. Forsaken, forgotten, forgiven. Friends, there are people we will encounter who will do destructive and self-destructive things. Addiction, abuse, neglect. This world is broken. And when people in our lives struggle against demons, it's, it's hard to watch. Especially when the effects of the demon's grip also has a grip on our lives. Like, that effect affects our lives too. So I know many of us know how hopeless life can seem when we're in the city looking at the man. But church, as the church, we can't forsake or forget anyone. We can never give up on people. Like the people from the city, we might be the ones who need to receive forgiveness for the people we have forsaken and the people that we have forgotten. One way we've read the text this morning is to highlight how this text is nothing less than a systemic critique of our disordered priorities. Right? Who might we need to ask forgiveness from this morning. Or we might be the people who, like the man in our passage, and like Anthony Ray, we've been forsaken, we've been forgotten by communities that were meant to support us, that were supposed to work for our good. Maybe you've been burned by the church, by a friend, by a family member. Let God start the process of forgiveness in your life. Let him start making you whole. It's not too late to start rooting out hatred with forgiveness. God, the master gardener, is here to help bring fruit in your life. Or maybe you were like this man before he's even been delivered from his demons. So maybe like him, you can't even ask for deliverance because legion, the legion of demons, makes it impossible for you to know who you are. Deliverance looks like destruction. Liberation looks like incarceration. Hear this word, friend. You are more than your demons. You are more than your past. You are more than your addictions. There is healing in Christ here today. So let God begin the process of healing in your life this morning. Let people start walking with you in your struggles. And let the people of God's holy city Bear you up. In a room this size, it's probable that there are people on all sides of the story. And this story has different sides that I didn't highlight today. They're, they're there too. There are people who need to start the process of being able to offer forgiveness. And there are people who need to receive forgiveness for wrongs they have done. And there are also people who need deliverance from some very real demons in their lives. So peace, friends. The peace of the Lord. God is here. Obey the Lord. Before we come to the table, we're going to take a couple minutes to pray. Andrew's going to play softly in the background here. But don't let the sun go down today without searching your heart before the Lord. This series, Encounters with Christ. This is the name of our series. I'd be amiss if we didn't have a space where we could do just that this morning. Encounters with Christ. So I'm not trying to manipulate you in any way. There there's, uh, isn't any, some, any kind of coercion here. God is here. Do not leave this place this morning without opening yourself up to God and saying, God, create in me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me, God. Don't leave this morning without seriously asking God who he might have in mind when he says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Discern this word with wisdom and discern it in community. God is here. Christ is here with us. The Spirit is interceding with us and for us. Demons do not have to continue to distort the image of God in us. And Jesus wants to deliver us from the tombs. There's healing here today, friends. Do not leave without letting God be God in your life. Because he's not through with you. Your story does not need to end with you being forsaken and forgotten. Let God start working forgiveness in your heart. Let's take a couple minutes to pray. I'll close us in prayer and then we'll come to the table. But let us pray, friends. Holy God, we come before you this morning. We come in humility. We come knowing that you are able to right all wrongs that we experience and all wrongs that we do. We pray your grace over us this morning. Make us whole, and may we be able to be the kinds of people who model you on the cross, who says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We pray this, God, with Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.